Hello, this is a special bonus edition of Wine Blast to mark the end of season four and to say thanks for listening. Now, it may be the the last episode of the season, but for us, this is a first, a world exclusive, a bold Mm. step into the unknown for Wine Blast, because this was the first time we'd recorded the pod in front of a live audience. Mm. And it was great fun, wasn't it? It was. And it wasn't just because of the free-flowing wine, either. You know, <laughs> any excuses, you know. No, I, I mean, it was the kind of thing we're, we're kind of really quite used to doing as part of our normal day jobs, aren't we? You know, mm. being on stage, talking the hind legs off a donkey about wine in front, of, in front of lots of nice people. But it was the first time we've done a live format for the for the podcast. And, and you know, I hesitate to say it, but... I think we could get used to it, couldn't we? I think we could. It was um, good. World tour, here we come. <laughs> so if you happen to live in, in a part of the world that's sunny and warm, has good food and wine, lots of nice people, be warned. <laughs> we may be bringing mischief and mayhem to your neighbourhood very soon. A wine blast on tour, it's quite a thought, isn't it? But uh, maybe before I start printing the T-shirts, uh, <laughs> we should come back down to earth um, and just explain what this was. Uh, it wasn't a huge event. It was quite an intimate gathering of, of nice people in our hometown of Winchester, which is set amid the chalk streams and rolling hills of southern England. Um, and the idea was just to do a, a light-hearted question-and-answer session for, for half an hour. And we did um, actually cover a fair amount in that time, didn't we? We I did, mean, actually. Yeah. We went from English wine to climate change yeah. to low alcohol and sulfite, sulfite-free wines, our top tips for dinner party wines, mm. favourite wine regions to visit. And we even got going on pretentious wine descriptions. I plead not guilty. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, no, I guess you guys, you. you guys will have to be the judge of that. Yeah, it, you know, it was a fun and, and wide-ranging discussion on all things wine, wasn't it? You know, it was mm-hmm. expertly compared by our friend George Bernand. Uh, thank you, George. Uh, and we will get stuck into all of that in just a moment. Um, before that, though, we wanted to mention a couple of things um, on, a, on another front, mainly sort of stuff that you've sent in, mm. uh, feedback and, and yeah. sort of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, very briefly. So Very briefly. So, so Matt C emailed from San Jose to say, just stumbled upon your podcast this week. Uh, it's fabulous. My family has owned a 65-acre vineyard in Napa since the early 70s. Today, we sell only Cabernet Sauvignon grapes to some of the Valley's top wineries. When I give tours of our vineyard, I emphasise terroir, primarily soil, climate and topography, and delve into the geology of the valley. After listening to your podcasts on minerality and geology, I'm second-guessing my presentation. My takeaway from your podcasts is that terroir matters, but maybe not as it's been traditionally defined. Maybe I should be talking about microbiomes, yeast and UV exposure. Anyway, I hope place still matters when it comes to grape growing. And obviously, there are long term financial implications for my family if it doesn't. Uh, But I want to be honest with folks when I discuss why Napa Valley is such a special wine region. I appreciate you both. And I've just subscribed to your podcast. Keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Really interesting. Um, I mean, I think if if you and your family are farming for quality, you don't have anything to worry about in a commercial sense. Um, as as for the broader points you raise, um, 
Yeah, terroir definitely matters. Mm. Um, I think it's it's more a question of trying to understand and explain it in in a more clear-eyed way than we have in the past. You know, maybe keeping more of an open mind as to what contributes to a wine's sense of of place or sense of uniqueness. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I definitely think that that microbes and UV will play a part in that. So yeah, maybe maybe we need to talk more. You need to talk more about that. Maybe you know, adopt a scientist to come and study your vineyard. To help your your presentation, I mean, I think some of, the, some of the presenters <laughs> at the Masters of Wine Symposium were urging people to to back research more and even, as you say, adopt a scientist, weren't they? Mm. Uh, maybe mm. we should all do it. Anyway, we had another ma- email in, didn't we? We did, yeah. This one's from, from Professor Nick Spencer uh, from the Department of Materials at ETH Zurich University, uh, who's been studying mouthfeel in wine fascinating topic mm. uh, obviously you know it is does what it says mouthfeel how a wine feels when it's in your mouth uh, and he writes uh, i listened to your microbiology podcast which was very interesting i actually had a bit of an aha moment at the end since you said something in that i said in my thesis but in a different way and contexts yeasts add manoproteins which are a kind of polysaccharide to the wine manoproteins have been shown to enhance the smoothness of the wine i.e work against astringency uh, partially because they react with tannins stopping them attacking the lubricating proteins in the saliva which would lead to a drying sensation Uh, manoproteins also lubricate the tongue themselves to some extent replacing the role of saliva different yeasts e.g. natural ones from the grape, will produce different manoproteins during fermentation, which will influence this smoothness in different ways. Maybe, as you said, the answer to the mouthfeel problem in non-alcoholic wines is to find the perfect yeast, because they would produce the perfect manoproteins that would enhance the mouthfeel and compensate for this for the missing alcohol. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> that is properly interesting. Um, and another potential avenue for us to explore, mm, um, mm. another way in which microbes could play a role in our drinking experience. Mm. I mean, the wine world definitely needs to up its game when it comes to no and low alcohol wine too, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, anyway, we've had lots of feedback, it's fair to say on our episodes on geology minerality and microbes please keep it coming uh, the idea was always wasn't it to generate debate uh, we love hearing your views and um, we'd love to be able to feature them on the show absolutely uh, one more piece of feedback this time from will g in honolulu who writes to say um, i wanted to share with you both how much i enjoy your podcast uh, the information is always great and the banter between the two of you is very enjoyable uh, last week i had the pleasure of listening to your portugal's fine wine episode And I wanted to tell you, I agree with the premise. About 10 years ago, my wife and I spent a few days in Lisbon. We came across a small store doing tastings. Almost everything we tried was delicious. We are now lifelong fans of Portuguese wines. Keep making great shows. And you did actually invite us to Honolulu for a drink. Ooh. Which was which was nice. I didn't know um, that. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, well, well, uh, just to say quickly, you know, we send best wishes to you, Will, and and the whole state community out there mm. after the recent fires. Mm. But um, mm. what do you think, drinking Honolulu? Well, one to pencil in our world tour dates, I would say. Um, <laughs> get it on the t-shirt. Now, by way of uh, one final piece of feedback, a lovely message via Twitter from Omar B, best sommelier of Mexico, who said, "I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it was thanks to your becoming a master of wine." episodes that I decided to do it. Fingers Mm. crossed, this will be my new adventure in this beautiful world of wine. So thanks, guys. Best of luck, Omar. Uh, Thanks to you and everyone for getting in touch. Uh, We love it when you reach out, just as we hugely appreciate you giving us your precious time.
time and company on a regular basis by tuning in, um, which a lot of you are doing. We've just gone past half a million downloads and the numbers just keep growing, don't they? Which is great news. Um, Yeah, yeah. And we do, I mean, we do really try to constantly um, do better, don't we, to keep you informed Mm. and and entertained. So with this in mind, after this season four closer, we're going to be launching season five pretty much straight away Mm -hmm. uh, in the next few weeks, certainly. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, We've got some fantastic content lined up, including an exclusive interview with actor turned winemaker, John Malkovich. Mm. Uh, we'll be marking the 50th anniversary of New Zealand's famous Marlborough region as well. And we'll be throwing some pretty strong opinions around in an episode on the best wine books out there. And that's just for starters. Can't wait. Uh, thanks to you all for your support for the subscription strategy To uh, We just haven't had time to put that in place for season five, but we are definitely looking to do this uh, with all the juicy bonus extras it will entail from the start of season, season six. So again, keep an eye out for that one. So by way of a final plug, if anyone in the UK wants some utterly delicious Hampshire <laughs> sparkling wine at an unbeatable price, we have the last few bottles of our Hope and Glory Fizz available from £20 a bottle. All proceeds go to charity, the Marine Conservation Society. We're going to give them a very big check soon and we'd love to get every last bottle sold before then. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the reason this is topical rather than an utterly random plug is that this is the wine we were all relishing as we recorded this live Q&A. So it's very appropriate, I think. On which note, on with the show. Uh, thanks for listening in season four. We'll look forward to seeing you in season five. Hello and welcome to Wine Blast with me, Susie Barry, and my husband and fellow Master of Wine, Peter Richards. But we're not the only ones here for this programme, are we? We, we most certainly are not. Uh, give us a cheer, everyone. Yay! So yes, we are here in the heart of historic Winchester in Hampshire, William the Conqueror's capital city. Uh, and we're in the Pilgrim's Hall under what is believed to be the oldest surviving hammer beam roof in the country, dating back to 1308. So we sense the weight of history on our shoulders. But we also sense the, the camaraderie of wine, do we not? You know, we're surrounded by smiling faces and, and uh, people clutching glasses of fine Hampshire fizz, you know, of which there is a lot these days. Mm, there is indeed. So all is well with the world. Um, and in this episode, the idea is to just do a fun Q&A session, uh, quite, you know, just light-hearted, um, all expertly steered by our compere and local legend, George Bernand. Uh, on which note, let's go. Over to you, George. Thank you very much, Susie and Peter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming to what is a world-exclusive event. I'm pretty sure that I've listened to most of the Wine Blast podcasts, and this is the first that is going to be recorded in front of a live audience. I think this could be the wine pit that could send these two on a UK or even world tour and we're very lucky to have them here in the Pilgrim's Hall today. Before I move into questions from you guys, we're here in Winchester uh, with the world-famous chalk stream, the river rich and flowing through it, and this chalky region is becoming more and more prevalent for the wine, with vineyards popping up all over the place. We're drinking the delicious fizz, which is from the char- from made for their charity, it's called Hope and Glory, made by Hattingley Valley. So, um, Susie and Peter, is this current trend going to be viable and sustainable, 
Or are these vineyards popping up as a short-term glamour project for the wealthy wannabe wine producers? Good question. I, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, the truth is you do need a lot of money to, to start a vineyard uh, and a winery. Um, there's a sort of a saying in the industry that um, how do you make a, a, a small fortune start with a large one and buy a vineyard? Um, because it really is very capital intensive. Um, that said... In the UK generally, not just Hampshire, um, there's so many people have decided that it is the right thing to do and people with money um, that it's sort of created a momentum now. And I think we're not really going to go back from that. We'll always be fairly boutique, but um, but it's really developing quite quickly now, isn't it? Yeah, but you can actually make money from it. I mean, you, you, can, you can make a business Ultimately, decision to make money from it. Yeah. I mean, there are probably better ways of doing that than others. Plant I, a vineyard rather than building a winery, for example, and sell the grapes is a good way to make cash. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still a, a tiny industry, isn't it? It is tiny. I mean, we've got about 4,000 hectares under vine, which has quadrupled since 2000, but it's still tiny compared to Champagne is 34,000, um, Bordeaux is 120 or something, 110. Um, so it's still very small and it probably will stay small, but it is growing all the time, isn't it? Yeah, it's growing all over. So I think, and what we are seeing is smaller people planting vineyards in, you know, maybe their back garden, maybe over the hedge or just doing really interesting things. And that's what, you know, it's kind of, yes, this industry started out with your kind of gentleman amateurs, but we're seeing all kinds of people just getting into it and fueling it. And that's really, really exciting. And I think you need that blend of different kind of entrants to make it exciting and, and, and diverse. So, you know, if any of you out there want to plant plant a vineyard, vineyard, um, then then what are you doing with your spare time? (laughs) Peter and Susie, before you get too overexcited about that subject, I'm going to pass you on to, to, to Philip here. Um, so we wouldn't get overexcited about climate change, but it is helping uh, English wine making, as you said. Um, are there any other non-traditional wine-growing countries, wine-making countries, we should think about? Yeah, climate change is, is, a, is a toughie, isn't it? Um, it? It is something that's massive, and we've all got to try and stop it, reverse it, do what we can to mitigate it as much as possible. Um, in the meantime, yes, you know, English wine is a very tiny sliver of a silver lining to climate change. Um, and other regions are adapting. So I think there's, there's two things here. Firstly is what new countries? Well, England, the UK is one of them. We did a, an episode recently on English wine and climate change, and we were already talking about Scottish wine um, and red wine becoming the norm rather than anything else. So it gives you an idea of the speed of change. Sometimes there are limitations, like, though. So yeah. Scotland's problem is it's too wet, you know. You know, and if it's too wet, it's just too wet, and you can't. And it's unlikely that that is necessarily going to change. However, things warm up. Um, so, that, so there are, and the, the downside of climate change, obviously, are the ridiculous weather events that you get. So, mm. in the UK, the downsides are frost, frost events. So what will happen is the, the the season will start warm. The buds think, great, let's let's start going and let's get out and bud burst. And then you get a frost. And so it really isn't all good news. But sorry, that's yeah, not really answering your question. I mean, um, yeah, to answer your question, which would be the polite thing to do, um, <laughs> Canada, Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. We've seen some really interesting things. We had a guest on from Holland, we really, did. did, didn't we, we did. recently? Um, where else? Japan. I'm not sure Japan is sort of massive. Tasmania's really Actually, yes. interesting. Really interesting. I, I went there a few years ago, and it's the most beautiful place, I don't know, probably some of you've been to Tasmania but you know that that is somewhere that really will benefit from uh, a warming climate because a lot of Australia now is in trouble 
Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we're seeing is, is elsewhere is adaptation. So, for example, in Germany, which we've always known for its white wines uh, and Riesling, now we're getting red wines and Pinot Noir. So, and in warmer con- countries and, and regions, like you're saying, people are just having to adapt and it's happening very, very quickly. Wine has been called the canary in the coal mine for climate change because it's so sensitive to its local environment that actually changing the weather changes the wine style. And that means people have to adapt. So we're already seeing that. Um, so yeah, a bottle of Swedish Chardonnay will be, will be soon on your table, Philip. Thank you very much. Moving to a more light-hearted, perhaps, um, Alison. Or maybe not. Um, <laughs> so you're allowed to include descriptions that each other has possibly made, but what is the most pretentious, overblown, overflown description you've ever heard someone use to describe wine? Don't hold back. Pretentious? Pretentious. <laughs> Well, it's not usually us, and Alison wasn't really meaning it necessarily us, but Pete did describe a a wine many years ago in front of his friends, which is probably not the best thing to do, as blousy, didn't you? And I don't think you've ever been forgiven. I I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what you were thinking. I don't even know what I meant, to be honest. I was probably just (laughs) just trying to sound impressive. Um, It's not. Yeah, the wine world's not short of pretentiousness in general. And, and I think sometimes, to be, to be serious about this for a second, sometimes it's meant as theatre. It's meant to be fun. People say, well, I, it's really boring to describe a wine as tasting of citrus fruits and, you know, some very specific herbs. It's why Let's Jilly Goulden was so famous. Yeah, exactly. Became exactly. so famous for her sweaty saddles. You know? um, sweaty saddles, that's, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, we did have one, there was one yeah. quote we used to use, and this is not pretentious, it's probably wrong, so I shouldn't say it, but... Um, Pinot Noir, someone describing when Pinot Noir tastes really good and slightly funky, it smells a bit like a Moroccan brothel, <laughs> which we couldn't possibly endorse. But um, I think wine tasting as theatre is quite, it's quite fun. It's, you know, it is, but the risk is it kind of alienates you. If you're not into that kind of thing, the risk is you think, well, I can't talk like that about wine, so I can't do wine. Um, so there is a lot of pretentiousness in wine. I think it's coming from a good place. People are trying to be fun. They're trying to be entertaining. But actually... If it puts you, you off, then that's that's not a good thing, yeah, you know. Yeah, so I've put everyone off with my blousy comment, but I've stopped it now, <laughs> honestly. I've stopped it. I've reformed myself. Okay, Jenny. Hi, thanks for that so far. Um, I'd be really interested to know what your views are on vintage versus multi-vintage sparklers and also what those are. Thank you. Should we start with what they are? Yeah, because yeah, that's probably the easy bit. Um, so multi or non-vintage really means the grapes came from different years. So, or, or several years, sorry. Um, vintage means they all came from just one year. So um, the reason that non-vintage or multi-vintage ever really got going, it was in Champagne, because Champagne's climate is really cold for, for wine growing. It's what we call as marginal climate. And so in a terrible year, what do you do? You can't make a great wine from a terrible year. So they would use wines from... They'd make the wines in every year, then they'd keep some back and use a mix of several vintages or years to make a wine. And it was a non-vintage wine. And that became really Champagne's main style, its calling card. Um, And they kind of pride themselves on making then a style of wine, the same wine every year. So that becomes this sort of puzzle of putting all the vintages together. But if you've got a great year, you can make a vintage wine, which is why you get vintage Champagne as well. In England, most wines, because the industry's only been going for, in the modern sense, for 20, 30 years, most people only make vintage wines because they don't have any reserve wines. It was only when we got to 2012 when it was a terrible vintage and everybody went, 
we've got no wine, they realised they were going to have to put some aside rather than sell everything they made. And so since 2012, the English wine industry now has started to put wines aside and they tend to make non or multi-vintage and vintage. And when we were talking about pretentious, I think we can describe multi-vintage as slightly pretentious because essentially it's non-vintage, but they're saying all my vintages are so amazing that it's a multi-vintage wine as opposed to a non-vintage wine. So splendour, it's just a blend of different years. And actually, you know, it's funny because wine, and it happens in fizz a lot, but it doesn't happen in normal wine. And actually you think, well, why can't it work for normal wine? And the reason, well, it can, and it can, and it can possibly make more complex, where there are some good examples of non-fizz, multi-vintage blends, which are really, really good, as you imagine they might be. Um, but every year is a new year. It's a new chance to sell a new story for wine people. So they tend to sell their new vintage, and vintage makes a story. So that's how, that's how it works. But some of the most expensive fizzes, sparkling wines in the world are multi-vintage. So Krug, famously, it's, it's, uh, it's Grand Cuvée. Mm-hmm. Am I getting that right? Yeah. It's multi-vintage. Um, and lots of English wines. English wines often benefit from being multi-vintage. And the difference in taste would be if you buy, um, say, Paul Roger non-vintage, every single time you buy a bottle, it ought to taste the same because that's the point of being able to, the, the chef de carve blends it to taste exactly the same. The idea of a vintage is it will reflect the house, but also the vintage. So you will get some variation in your vintages. But as we know, you know, the word vintage, you can just slap another tenner on the, on the price tag as well, <laughs> can't you? So like with clothes. They are more expensive. Um, a question that I'm sure is on everyone's lips from Jim. So what should you always have stocked at home? <sighs> Family pack of Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> um, good question. And your favourite wine. Well, do, do you have any, any, any favourite stocking things at home, Jim? No? No? Oh, fine. You need the advice. So I, I would definitely say your whatever you because what we go and open is what we like best. We might ha- we do have a lot of wine as you can imagine. That's what we tend to spend our money on. But we always go for the ones that we just like the best. And so I would say always have the ones you like because wine's about your taste, not everybody else's. But um, there are a few things like definitely a really good non-vintage sparkling wine, traditional method sparkling wine because you can sit it in in a coolish place and it will just get better that's so a really good point exactly two, so three four years it's not going to deteriorate so we talked about non-vintage and non-vintage usually is the, the slightly cheaper style of fizz but if you buy people always say well should, what should i keep buy don't buy one buy six you could probably get it a bit cheaper as well but then stick the other five under the stairs and they will mature and they will taste much nicer when you go back to them every time so definitely having a stock of good traditional methods fizz whether it's english or, or champagne Buy a, buy a bit, keep it at home, keep it stocked up, and you will be able to then go back to it and it will taste even nicer from being stocked at home. Uh, what, what I, think in the, I think in the summer, it's really nice to have a bottle of Fino in the fridge. You know, so Fino sherry in the fridge is really nice. If, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But if you like it, it's great to just that's keep in there. That's because you're pretentious. I, it might be because I'm pretentious. I, see, I go rosé, Jim. Rosé <laughs> Rose is, 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 is year round. It's not just for summer. So and it's always it's always good to get it out, and I think people actually quite like it. So, some lovely roses out there right now. But beyond that, it's what you like, you know, house staples. If you like white, go for, you know, and if you like fresh white, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, if you like red, lighter red, nice Pinot Noir, whatever. I think having loads of Pinot Noir, if you like red, it's hard to beat. It really is. It goes with so many things. So many people like it. It's it's you know it it can be spectacular and it can be really easy drinking. Um. I hesitate to say this, but we 
love Chardonnay, so we're going to have a shed load of Chardonnay in our wine cellar or wherever. Um, but, you know, that's about what you like. If you don't like Chardonnay, you don't want that in there. Um, but kind of versatile wines, wines that'll go with lots of things and won't offend anybody too much. We are Chardonnay tarts. It's, it's, it's official, yeah. and, and I'm happy to say that. Oaky, whatever you like. We love oaky Chardonnay. Oak, we love, we oak, love it. Yeah. But, but well oaked Chardonnay. Well oak not, Chardonnay. not over oak, but you know, yeah, just yeah. a bit of oak. Yeah. No Pinot Grigio. Favourite Chardonnay and favourite rosé. That, that's like asking us which our favourite child is. So, right, I'll, I'll give you a Chardonnay. So, so exactly. No, can, no, so, we, no, we can do this. We can so do, let right. me start. We also, we, start? Also, we also have to argue, because Alison said we need to argue, okay, so okay, I'm going to really? argue. Yeah, no, yeah definitely. No, I, uh, one Chardonnay that I think is fantastic, that is about £25, so it sort of falls in the middle, is Dog Point um, from New Zealand. And so I think it, it's okay, but not too much. We literally could drink that every single day, couldn't we? And always open a bottle and go, oh, love this. We may have had a cheeky glass before we came out. (laughs) Uh, What was the other one? Rosé? Rosé. I'd go for a magnum of, um, yeah. Wouldn't you just? I would. Well, I mean, there's some lovely lovely Provencal rosé, but it's kind of Um, nice English Pinot rosé. Yeah, Tough and Hall is really delicious. Mm. Absolutely. It's 100% Pinot Noir. Um, it's very easy drinking. It's a name that nobody will particularly have heard of unless you live right near Tuffen Hall. Um, and it's it's great. It's re- And it's not too high alcohol, so you can have a lot of it. The other one we like is Domain of the Bee, Roussillon Rosé oh, from yeah, France. Yeah. And ju- just to finish off, sorry, on Jim's question, one other thing, Jim, uh, is bagging boxes. They are, they are the big new thing. Bottles are environmentally not brilliant. They're heavy. They take a lot of energy to make. So actually, for, for staples, don't forget alternative formats. And bagging boxes are really good. There's some fantastic bagging box wines now, really good quality. They're much better environmentally, and you can just keep them in the fridge. And, and, if and no one notices if you finish the, the bottle. Bag. The, bag. the Wine Society have just literally yeah, launched true. a range of bagging yeah. boxes. Well, we all own, need to get yeah. behind it, because that's the way we're going to make wine a bit more environmentally friendly. Sorry, Josh. No, that's brilliant. I'm going to move on to a sort of more in-depth, um, sort of the, the larger party um, I'd love to know what wines you would select for a larger dinner party of 10 or more people uh, with a mixture of both veggies and meat eaters. Are we invited? Because <laughs> that's going to... Oh, yes. Right. Okay. Where do we start then? Magnums. Magnums. Magnums to start with. Yeah, actually, Definitely we just magnums. talked about magnums. We talked about rosé and magnums, but rosé, you know, we all forget it's a hugely versatile food wine and it goes with fish and it goes with meat. Um, but the way to serve it is in Magnus because suddenly it transforms what might be an ordinary drink into something that's very, very special. So Magnus and Rosé have to be on your table. I think you've got to think about, A, you've got a lot of guests and they've probably all got different taste. And there are certain wines that tend to be a bit Marmite. Um, and equally, you've got all the different foods. So you sort of want wines that are easy drinking. Um, you don't want anything too kind of really big and bold and alcoholic. You don't want anything that is probably too oaky because that isn't going to suit everybody so I mean things like Grüner Veltliner is lovely from Austria that is middle of the road and it's not a grape that everybody drinks um but it's it's a really nice or Albarino you know just something a little bit different but equally not going to scare the horses could I could I throw two two other options in there Charlie and that is um Santorini Assyrtico Assyrtico being a Greek grape variety and it's it is the ultimate food wine in our view, and it goes with 
Everything, absolutely everything you throw it at, from from meat to fish to to, to whatever. You just and then, said throw it at. I think you mean at it. I, yes, I do tend to do that, don't I? <laughs> yeah. Whatever you throw your wine party, at. At a dinner party. You can just drink it. It gets very exciting. <laughs> um, and then the other one is, and this is a bit more niche, but um, when I was filming in Georgia recently, um, it, I was, had explained to me that the orange wines they make in Georgia... Um, these ones where it's, it's a white wine made like a red so you keep the skins with it and it gets a bit more texture and a bit more body to it orange wines they, the reason they developed them was because in Georgia when you go and you have a, a feast it's literally every single kind of flavour on the table you, you've got spicy you've got delicate you've got meat you've got fish and the orange wines, they've made them to go with that range of cuisine. So orange wine is actually can be a really good choice with a range of people and a range of foods. And we haven't done red. So red, I would say often, um, particularly if you've got vegetarian, sort of, which can be a bit sort of vegetables that are quite fruity flavoured, passamento style. So where you've, you've slightly partially raisined your grapes. So from down in the south of Italy, um, they're really kind of lovely, rounded. They've almost got a touch of sweetness but I hesitate to say that because everybody goes, I don't want a red wine with sweetness but you'd be amazed it works really well with them um, with lots of different dishes um, and equally southern Italian whites as well. Charles, would you like to ask your question please? Well, Alcohol-free beer has moved a long way since it first emerged and is becoming more popular as a result. I'm yet to discover a decent alcohol-free wine. Uh, why is that? And do you think it will be, ever be possible to get a good one? That's a really good question. And we're with you. Uh, we haven't found a really great alcohol-free white, uh, wine yet. Um, and not for lack of trying. It's, it's an area we're really, really... Because like for us, it's the holy grail. If we could have something that tastes like wine, um, but doesn't have the alcohol, it would be lovely to have a night off with something that delicious. The problem is... You're basically in beer you're taking out five percent of the volume and in wine you're taking out about 15 percent and that's a big difference in terms of taste and beer is we forget beer is a flavored drink it's flavored with hops um wine you've just got the fermented grape juice so it's a double whammy really if you like for wine um beer's done a brilliant job i don't know if you remember sort of was it was it caliber the really really great i mean that's that was but that was 10, 15, 20 years ago, and they've really invested. Um, so now AB InBev are saying, you know, they're, they're fully, you know, 25% of profits are going to come from alcohol-free stuff in the next couple of years. This is massive. Wine's just been slow on the uptake, as it generally tends to be, and it's moved very slowly. And there hasn't been the R&D. And what we need is to have kind of Chateau Margaux-level grapes, and people saying, this is top-quality grapes, let's try and make a really good drink out of it. We haven't seen that yet. Um, but beers are some really good ones, aren't they? Well, we definitely haven't. Unfortunately, I would love to say we've come across a really good alcohol-free wine. I think you've also got to remember, you know, we drink to sort of feel a bit relaxed as well. Um, so, so that's another area that's being researched now in sort of um, functional drinks that will also make you feel a bit relaxed as well. So if we could get a bit of both going, that would be really nice. Yeah. Um, but the wine, they're, they're a long way behind. Yeah. So just a few, a few names. If I, blurred vines, to, to our mind, the ones that work well in a wine style generally are not the wines that kind of, they're made like a traditional wine and the alcohol's just taken out. It, it's just not working. So the best ones are ones where people are playing around with flavorings. Um, and Susie's mentioned functional drinks, and that's a really interesting area where people are using adaptogenics um, from herbs to try and sort of give you that well, well-being, that feeling of relaxed well-being. 
in a sort of <laughs> you know wine like yeah scenario it doesn't really work for us but then we worked out you had to actually stop drinking booze for a while before and we, we can't do that so um it's an interesting feel but things like blurred vines are a really good brand for wine like type substances um, they also do some some um, functional spirits and if anybody as well. finds one that they really like please let us know yeah. we would love but to a couple of brand, lights from germany do a really good job they could do a good fizz and a good riesling and then sin zero from chile but you know yeah we're still it's still one that needs to be worked on i completely agree um i've got a question that might loosely relate to this from ingrid Hi there. Um, I have a question about sulfite or sulfite-free wine. Firstly, what is it? Um, can you recommend any? And it, are they a hangover panacea or just a marketing gimmick? So I'm just going to answer those in turn. It doesn't, no, and yes. <laughs> but I think I forgot the last question, so I might have got that wrong. I think yes was no for the last question. D- what she said. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so it's a really interesting question. We do get it asked a bit there is no such thing as sulfite free wine unless it's been treated chemically post-production because fermentation naturally produces sulfites the other myth that needs busting is that sulfites cause hangovers which is just not true sulfites get blamed for a lot of things but and this is sort of one area i think a lot of people you know we've heard people say i'm allergic to sulfites or sulfur i think it's one in a hundred people are actually genuinely allergic to sulfur yeah and even then it's not generally allergic we're probably talking to a room full of doctors so we're probably out of line here but it's more of an intolerance so so what are sulfites it's probably best to start there sulfites are natural organic compounds usually found as sulfur dioxide they're used as a preservative a natural preservative and they're an incredible they're incredible things they kind of work in many different ways to basically, you know, prevent spoilage. The thing that's quite interesting, if you think you're having problems with sulfites, is to have some dried fruit, have some pickled onions, believe it or not, have... Bagged salad. Bagged salads, canned soup. They're in charcuterie. They're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. And in far greater um, concentrations than in wine. If they don't affect you, it's not the sulfites. The problem generally is drinking too much full stop. And as I can say from personal, bitter personal experience... Even so-called sulfite-free wines or no-added sulfur wines or natural wines, because they're often ones which are made with minimal sulfur, they can still give you a pretty roaring hangover. Um, So the issue is not actually sulfites. And intriguingly, what we're starting to understand, we still don't really know, is the the short answer. There's a lot of medical stuff in wine we don't really understand, which is very frustrating. What we're starting to understand is, is actually the opposite. Sulfites tend to control the things which might really be causing you damage. And they're something called amines or amines, biogenic amines, like histamine, for example, which we all know about, which is in tree pollen and bee venom. Um, These things can occur in certain wines. And when they're not controlled by sulfur, if you're making your wine quite naturally with minimal sulfur, you can have loads of these things. So actually, that can end up being, mineral sulfur can actually end up being a wine that causes you much more of a hangover. So it's a, it's a, it's a funny one. You've got to ch- kind of choose your wine with care. And if you have these I- issues, which are horrible, like migraines and headaches and rashes, which a lot of people get, it's likely too low sulfur rather than too high. We blame sulfur for too many things. Is that enough of a soapbox? I felt like, uh, I felt like I've, I've been managed to get, up, get something off my chest. Thank you very much. Very I'm, I'm, I've got one more to, um, to leave you on. Hopefully we'll get some exciting um, tales. Hi. Um, yeah, I heard you talking about trips to Tasmania and Georgia, but could you share with us perhaps your favourite wine tour? Favourite wine tour from each of us? Um, thank you. It's a lovely question. It's lovely to indulge in this sort of um, 
romantic little we, we were asked to do a piece of the Sunday Times recently where we had to recommend three each and we literally came to blows uh, I'm having that one no you're no I'm not you know so we we there are so many have you been any have you traveled wine wise at all wine world no well you see that well, there is one thing um Hampshire you know UK actually now Kent Sussex Hampshire Cornwall Dorset that you can go on a wine tour in the UK and it's absolutely idyllic um, we've got lots of hotels planting vineyards now, like the pig uh, in in in, uh, in Kent. Arund- Arund- um, well, Arundel is Michael Caine's yeah. in Devon. There's, you know, you can do this in the UK, which is fantastic. You know, if the weather's nice, which is yeah, you might have to imagine I that. Think, what are the most gorgeous wine locations? I mean, I think um, Rioja is one of the most beautiful wine locations in the world. It really is just stunning and. Even just saying it makes me smile because I just think of being in Rioja and it is absolutely an w- incredible place to go to, I would say. Yeah, also in Spain, Sherry Country, uh, we went there for, yeah. for your birthday, is, mm. is, is underrated. And, you know, Cadiz, to go to Cadiz and the Sherry Triangle, and they go to Seville and the eating and drinking there is outrageous. And then, oh, it's, you know, it's absolutely wonderful. But I'd throw Santorini in there. I think that's the ultimate wine destination for me. And ironically, it's, de- it's a wine destination which is being killed by tourism. But they want the right kind of tourists who really appreciate the wines. The wines are sensational. It's the most beautiful, most historic, most... The wines are sensational. It's so that's fantastic. Tasmania, you'd probably stick in I'd there. I'd stick Tasmania um, in there, definitely. Where else would where else we, we throw in Duro there? Douro Valley is amazing. Douro Valley. South Africa is very well known. Um, but there are some places which are really, you know, much less well known as well. And so the wine world constantly sort of throws up these little... You know, place. I mean, Italy, Sicily, uh, Alto Adige. Um, you know, you people, could go on and People on. don't tend to make wine in rubbish places. So, you know, you, wherever there's wine, it's probably quite nice. Now I think about it. It's a bit like cricket as well. You don't tend to play cricket in places that are rubbish as well. There's, that's why there's a lot of former cricketers which, who make wine now, which is, it's, there could, there's a book in that, something. Um, <laughs> but no, there's a lot of wine destinations. And, and, uh, but let's not forget what's on our doorstep too. Peter and Susie, thank you so, so much for um, answering us questions. I'm sorry we didn't get through all of the questions, but um, I think it's been a, a, a huge success. It's been a fantastic um, evening, and um, hopefully we will be able to see you on many, many venues around the country or may, maybe around the world doing your live, um, live recorded podcasts going forward. Thank you, George. Yeah, so um, everyone's glasses are empty. Um, uh, I think it's time for a refill so um, I think we've left our audience wanting more haven't we yeah Yeah. yes oh thank you that was that sounded like I was fishing for that which I I probably was actually I think you just want more I think you just want more wine not not more of our stuff anyway that's fine we'll take that we'll take that we'll take it either Um, so thank you very much to you our glorious audience Um, thank you very much to you George as well Um, and thanks to you for listening until next time cheers Thank you very much.